because it, it was a, a, a do or die kind of a situation. I suppose the effects of all this change will probably be felt a little bit unequally. Generative AI is going to kind of push the issue a little bit uh, and, and bring about some real changes. Half of law firms in the US were still pen and paper just a few years ago. Yeah, that, that's the secret sauce, and I and I've, I've believed that's from the earliest days. In this episode of the Firelose podcast, we spoke with Bob Ambrogi, whose career has taken him to the intersection of law, media, and technology. A lawyer, journalist, media consultant, and blogger, Bob is known internationally for his expertise in legal technology, legal practice, and legal ethics. Today, Bob writes the award-winning blog, Law Sites, as a columnist for Above the Law and the ABA Journal, and hosts the podcast about innovation in law, Law Next. In 2011, Bob was named in the inaugural Fast Case 50, honoring the law's smartest, most courageous innovators, among many other honors and awards. So I can't wait to share this conversation with you about Bob's career I'm sure you'll love it. Well, Bob, it's great to see you. We first met more than a year ago now at ClioCon, uh, but your reputation preceded you, of course, um, and I'm really excited for our conversation. Well, thank you so much for having me. I'm really honored to be on the show. So, Bob, you've been a lawyer and a journalist focused on the law for a while. Before your career, you were born in a small town in West Massachusetts. What was life like growing up in Agawam? I'm going to get myself in trouble here if anybody's listening from my hometown. But I mean, my it, it, well, it was a very. Uh, I grew up in a very you know sort of s- suburban uh, small town, uh, but it was uh, the kind of town that most people who grew up there uh, look forward to getting out of, <laughs> as opposed to staying there. It, you know, it, it's not a kind of a place where uh, where you grow up and think this is where I want to spend the rest of my life. So uh, I was uh, I I had a perfectly fine childhood uh, in a wonderful little town, uh, but uh, was happy to move off and go to college. Yeah, I spent some of my childhood growing up in small towns around New Zealand, and um, uh, you know, one of them three thousand people, and um, well, it's it's perfectly lovely to like spend time there and live there. I suppose there aren't many like specialized opportunities to go and make a career out of. So people often look for, for bigger places to go. Yeah. And just not a lot to do. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. That's true. <laughs> yeah. It's relaxing, but it's also boring sometimes. So you started your career as a journalist uh, and along the way, along the way you became a lawyer as well. Today you do both. And as a journalist, you focus on the law and legal tech. Could you talk about why you went to school to study journalism and what your life was like at the time? I was uh, I, I, I was somebody who grew up always thinking that I wanted to be a writer of some kind, and uh, I, I think uh, in my in my long term vision, I wanted to become a, a famous you know world famous novelist or, or or something of that sort. But uh, I, I was uh, always really. Uh, intrigued by journalism, I, I had uh, as, as early as I can remember was was kind of writing, you know, my my high school newspaper. I was writing stories for that, uh, and then I went to college. I, I was a, a journalism major when I went to college, and uh, actually had an opportunity uh, while I was in college to become to, to create and and run a, a, a very small 
newspaper in a in a community uh, in Western Massachusetts near where I grew up uh, that was uh, focused on a, on a, on a community that was a, a multiracial, multi-ethnic community. And, and uh, we used to put the newspaper out in, in multiple languages uh, at the same time, Spanish and English and actually Italian as well. Uh, not that I spoke all those, but uh, it was quite an endeavor. Uh, but eventually I graduated and uh, I continued doing that newspaper for a bit, but it was uh, not something that uh, I was making a lot of money at, uh, and I didn't see a lot of career opportunities there. And it was hard work uh, and, and not all that financially rewarding. And I thought, uh, well, if I want to get ahead in journalism, uh, I need to go back and get an advanced degree in journalism. Um, but uh, when I talked to my my the uh, professor who'd been my uh, journalism advisor as an undergraduate, he he discouraged me from going, the traditional route for me would have been to get a master's degree in journalism, but he discouraged me from that saying that, uh, you know, if you really want to get ahead in journalism, he said, get take some education that's going to teach you kind of how the world works. And uh, I asked him what he meant. And he said, you know, if, if I had it all to do over again, I would get a law degree. He said, uh, you know, if you understand the legal system and the laws, then you really kind of understand almost everything you're going to be writing about it, whether you're reporting on government or business or even family affairs, uh, divorces or whatever else it might be. Uh, all of that has a legal underpinning to it. And uh, uh, I thought about it and kind of made sense and uh, hadn't really thought about the law all that much before that. But I went ahead and took the, uh, the uh, entrance exam for law school and did pretty well. And uh, Ended up going on to law school with the idea that it would further my career in journalism, but uh, you know, as, as you've already pointed out, it, it's kind of uh, I've kind of taken two uh, parallel paths throughout my career. I've, I've uh, kept one foot in, in the journalism world and, and one foot in the in the law world, and and in in related ways. They're they're not uh, they're not obviously not black and white worlds, but uh, it's been uh, it, it it worked out. <laughs> Yeah, definitely. And, and there are a lot of similarities across um, the work that lawyers and journalists do, of course. Absolutely. Um, yeah. And I think in the past, journalists have been some of the early adopters of, you know, internet and technology, using it to share and distribute the news. Um, in hindsight, it probably seems um, obvious how transformational the internet has been for really every area of work. But um in the early 2000s, you rightly identified that this, the internet was something that would impact lawyers significantly, probably a lot earlier than most people. How did your interest in legal tech really start and how, do, how do, have you seen the industry evolve over time? It was interesting. I, I was uh, I up up until that point. I, I had gone a little bit kind of back and forth in, in my, between my law practice and, and journalism. When I first got out of law school, I decided to go into law practice, and I was working uh, as a lawyer. Uh, but uh, I started to regret that I hadn't gone back into journalism as I intended, and I, I had an opportunity come along to become the editor of a, a legal newspaper, a newspaper for lawyers uh, here in the United States, and. Uh, out of that, uh, I, I started doing that, and then I moved from that job to another job. Um, but uh, there was a point at which um, I was uh, uh, thinking about transitioning, or maybe I already had kind of transitioned back into law practice again. As you can see, I went back and forth a bit. 
Uh, and, and I was thinking about, well, you know, when I, when I work at these companies or when I work in big law firms, I've had access to, uh, you know, some of the prime legal research resources and that kind of thing. Uh, but if I were to go out on my own, uh, I don't know that I could afford all that stuff. So I, I started to think about, well, there's this internet thing out there. And I wonder what, what I can do on the internet in terms of performing legal research or finding cases or whatever else. Uh, and so I started playing around with the internet and this was in the days before the web had been invented. I mean, this was the old sort of raw internet where you were basically just kind of, uh, uh all text-based, all kind of coding your way around. Uh, it was uh, difficult to use, uh, very, very uh, esoteric. Um, but I did, kind of begin to th see the potential, I think, especially once the web did come along, which was in 90, what was that, uh, 93, 94, something like that, when they when, when the web kind of launched. But uh, uh, at that point, I just really started to see, well, wow, there's some really potential here for lawyers to use this medium. And, and at that point, without having to spend a lot of money, I mean, just about, I mean, everything was free on the internet in those days. Nobody, there were no commercial services or anything else. So uh, I, I just decided to start, start uh, I, I thought they should know about it. <laughs> I thought lawyers should know about it. Nobody was really writing about it at that point or talking much about it other than maybe a couple of academics in law schools. And uh, so I started what was then a print, a, a, well, a syndicated column. I started uh, calling up different uh, bar associations and, and legal newspapers and whatever and said, I'm going to be writing this column about the internet for lawyers and would you like to buy it? And I had a number of people take me up on it and I got a bunch of subscribers for that. And, and that grew into a, another publication and that grew into a couple books and uh, that grew into my launching a blog and then a podcast and <laughs> kind of led me down a path that I certainly didn't anticipate at the time I started doing it. And, and, and I'll have to say, I certainly never thought I'd be doing it uh, this much uh, beyond when I, when I first started doing it. Yeah, I can imagine it's been quite a, uh, quite a journey from those early days and You've probably seen a lot of things um, that maybe you, you expected and seemed obvious and probably some things that, um, you know, came out of the, the walls and seemed really crazy. Um, like what, how do you, um, how do you think the way lawyers practice the law and serve clients will change kind of in the future, call it 10 years from now? Oh man, it's uh, you know it, it it's changed so dramatically in the years I have been doing this. I mean, I I sometimes joke uh, when I, when I'm asked to speak to a, a group about technology or the internet that that the reason they like to invite me in is that I'm old enough to remember what it was like before we had any of this stuff, and I and I really am. I mean, I I remember when law practice was entirely paper based. Uh, uh, when when there was virtually no digital or or online resources. Uh, and uh, where we, you know, typed out documents on typewriters with carbon paper and, and that sort of thing. Um, and uh, it has changed so dramatically in the years that I have been practicing. Uh, and, and it just continues to accelerate. The pace of change continues to accelerate. Um, I do think there's, I think there's no question that, that, artificial intelligence, generative artificial intelligence, which is what everybody is talking about these days, um, is going to have a, 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 a 
see, cause a sea change in, in, in legal practice. Uh, I, I think it's going to dramatically restructure how lawyers deliver services. It's going to dramatically structure even the roles of different kinds of legal professionals. Uh, it's going to dramatically change what clients can do for themselves versus what they need a lawyer for. Um, so, you know, I, I think it, it, it remains to be seen what that's going to look like in, in 10 years. But, um, it, uh, you know, the, the, the tasks that lawyers focus on uh, is going to be much different. Their relationship to their clients, I think, is going to be much different. And a lot of the just sort of mundane things that remains a, remain a part of practicing law perhaps will go away. Perhaps uh, AI will take over a lot of that. Um, if I could, not to go on too long about this, but I mean, you know, a particular interest of mine, a particular passion of mine really has been the use of technology to close the justice gap and to enhance access to the justice system by those who can't afford it or who maybe are geographically remote for it or whatever else. Uh, and I, I, I really believe that the, that the potential for generative AI to change that equation is, is huge. And uh, that that means that there are going to be new forms of new forms of entities, perhaps delivering legal help, legal services, whatever you want to call it, uh, and reaching uh, large numbers of, of, of people who perhaps haven't had that access up until now. So that could ultimately be the greatest the greatest change a decade from now, maybe five years from now even. Yeah, I think that's a really interesting point. And, um, you know, if you look at any of the um, the previous um, kind of fundamental um, technological changes that have introduced these like new platforms, for lack of a better word, like mobile or like cloud based um, software, you know, they have been really deflationary for like for for prices um, on 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 average. And so, you know, with AI, um, one of the things that, one of the consequences of um, this, the, the, the technology that will be available due to like generative AI in a few years time is that it'll be much more accessible to build software. Um, and so, and, and of course the type of software that's available will be very different. And so, yeah, it'll be, it'll be fantastic to have, you know, some of those areas of law like um, legal aid uh, being much more accessible due to some of these new solutions that are able to be provided at a really low cost um, and um, are able to be made really accessible regardless of um, the language you speak or, you know, as you say, your geography. Um, so that's that's really exciting. Um, something. Yeah, and I, and I would yeah. agree that just to, just not, not to cut you off, but just to, I mean, the, the, I think part what goes along with exactly what you're saying is uh, evolution or, or, or changes in, in who it is that's developing that software and delivering that software. I mean, the, a big, big topic of conversation over the last few years in the United States uh, has been this whole idea of, of, of deregulation of the delivery of legal services, of, of allowing, you know, alternative uh, business structures to uh, deliver uh, legal help of, of, of various kinds uh, and, and I know we're 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 behind uh, other other jurisdictions in having that conversation, but I, I do think that the advent of generative AI is going to kind of push the issue a little bit uh, and and bring about some real changes uh, there as well.
Yeah, definitely. Yeah, I mean, I see here in uh, well, here in Australia where I live now, um, in my home in New Zealand, um, there are like a diverse range of companies as opposed to law firms that um, have legal professionals on staff and provide um, legal services to their clients. Um, and it, yeah, it does really, I guess, open the door for more diverse approaches to providing legal services and can have some interesting consequences. To change change tune slightly, um, something I often hear from like more or less like tech bros, um, kind of like me, I guess, and um, and like venture capital investors is the as they're very um, optimistic about technology and often often expect um, timescales to be really short. And you know, people say, oh, you know, generative AI is going to just like be used by everyone everywhere in a few years time and um that's not really what we've seen in the past um so you know i think it'll be quite interesting to see things like for instance a few years ago only 50 percent of law firms in the us were using cloud-based tools to manage their practices mm -hmm. or practice management mm -hmm. systems in general so um half of law firms in the us were still pen and paper just a few years ago so um to think we'll see uh you know, this explosion of, of use of AI amongst that demographic of, of people in the legal industry um, might, might be a little bit naive, but it will be certainly, um, I'm sure we'll see a lot of like diversity and how the technology is used and who's using it um, and things like that too. Right. Well, yeah, yeah there do come these events that, that, uh, accelerate that that momentum and that pace of adoption obviously the pandemic was was one of them we, we've all talked about that but uh, that had a dramatic impact on the numbers of lawyers who were adopting cloud technology or even mm. even using some basic uh, technology because it it was a a, a do or die kind of a situation in, in mm. terms of adopting some of that technology uh, and you know it, it, it's hard to say with generative AI because you know what we're like a year into it, uh, mm. and there have been no kind of earth-shattering or earth-changing applications that have come along so far. I don't think, uh, but but cumulatively, we're starting to see some some important uses for this technology. And again, I think cumulatively, it's going to be clear. The writing will be on the wall pretty quickly that that uh, you know it's adapt or die for, for, for lawyers. Uh, I mean, Thompson Reuters just came out with a study on the U S legal market just this week that I, I wrote about earlier this week that, I mean, that was kind of the theme of, of their study was, you know, they, they talked about the, the failure of, of Pan American airways, which is, <laughs> you know, once the world's largest uh, global air carrier uh, in, in kind of recognized for uh, it's uh, for, for being an innovative airlines, um, but, uh, you know, it, it kind of saw the world uh, the way it once was and failed to see the way the world was changing and it no longer exists. Uh, and uh, that, that could well happen to lawyers who don't get on board with generative AI. Yeah, yeah, definitely. I think um, what we're seeing is, um, is that people are really responding to that and, and this, this new kind of technology. And I guess it's constantly in the news. So, so people are really like, hey, you know, I really need to start adopting technology. So even, you know, people who may have been called laggards in the recent past are, are kind of getting, getting this, the things together and trying to move forward, which is, uh, which is exciting mm -hmm. to see as well. Mm -hmm. um, 
Yeah, and I suppose the effects of all this change will probably be felt a little bit unequally. So maybe in certain areas or specialisations of the law, we'll see more um, disruption faster than others. Today's episode is sponsored by VXT, the phone system built for law firms. VXT integrates with practice management systems so that when lawyers make calls, their billable time and legal advice can be saved in the right place automatically. 20% of billable time goes unrecorded. A lot of that is phone calls that get forgotten about. Get some of those billables back using VXT. Go to vxt.co.nz or click the link in the description to find out more. So I want to move back to journalism a little bit now. You talked about um, leading newspapers throughout your careers, uh, throughout your career, and um, you particularly, you mentioned how it was a lot of hard work, especially when you took your first role leading a newspaper out of college. Um, I'd love to understand, like, what did you, what do you see as being the largest challenges that you faced when you were leading those newspapers? Yeah, it's a good question. Uh, with that first newspaper, it, it was really simply the fact that I was, uh, you know, as they say, chef, cook and bottle washer. I was doing everything for that newspaper. I was, I was coming up with the stories. I was writing the stories. I was t- doing the photography. I had a dark room where I was going in and, you know, this was in the days before digital photography. I was uh, developing film. I was then going out and selling advertising and, and literally distributing, <laughs> distributing mm-hmm. the newspaper to the various places. I didn't go house to house, but we had pickup points around the around the town. I, you know, it was, I was going to, I was doing the typesetting uh, for it. Uh, We had to go to this printer and, you know, do, you had to kind of manually do the typesetting and then lay it all out. Um, So it was a lot of work, Uh, just, just manually a lot of work. Fortunately, a a lot of that kind of stuff has changed uh, over the years. Um, You know, and and for, for the, the, the challenge, in, in my law practice, and I, I do continue to practice law, and I, I actually represent newspapers uh, as a lawyer. They, they are my clients, and I, I represent a, an association uh, of, of newspapers and news organizations uh, here in the state where I live in Massachusetts. Uh, uh, I represent all of the newspapers uh, as an organization here. Uh, and, I mean, the challenges now are, is really the, the move toward digital. I mean, you know, nothing we're we're not all aware of, but it's the move to digital and what that has meant for advertising, what that has meant for circulation, um, what that has meant for the, the sort of the speed of reporting, the, the pace of reporting. Um, And uh, you know, it's, it's just an entirely running, you know, we keep using the word newspaper, but but paper is almost a, a, you know an irrelevant concept in a sense right now. Uh, plenty of plenty of them still publish in paper, but uh, even the smallest ones that publish in paper can't be just paper. They have to be digital as well. They have to be plugged into the digital cycle of of twenty four seven news. Uh, they have to be video production crews and and, and uh, everything else. Uh, so it, it's just a whole different profession now, and it's it's a much more you know in a sense the the, the profession as it is now is 
demanding in a different way, but but demanding certainly as as a, for journalists and editors, much very demanding of their time uh, again because it's not enough to just say here's my story for the day and put it to bed. It's that story could be changing throughout the day and I might be filing it several times. And meanwhile, I might be writing five other stories as well today. Um, you know, it, it, there's only so much, uh, only so much they can do. The advertising model has been hard. It's been hard for a lot of the major news organizations to figure that out. Um, and uh, figure out how to how to continue to sustain. Some have done very well at it. You know, the New York Times, the Wall Street Journal, obviously, have, have seem to have uh, found a formula that works quite successfully for them. But I think a lot of other publications are are, are struggling to figure out how to do it. Uh, you know, even for my, I, I do a blog and I do a podcast, and and those are businesses for me as well as uh, uh, hobbies or or whatever you want to call them, and. Uh, um, you know, we, it's taken us some time to kind of develop a, a business model that works for that, that can help sustain the work that we put into it as well. Yeah. It's interesting thinking about how, um, those challenges have shifted over time. And, you know, I, I think, um, uh, correct me if I'm wrong, cause I'm sure, you know, but, um, I think there was recently, uh, you know, in the past year or so, this, this issue and maybe Europe where, uh, Facebook um, was being asked to uh, was being asked to I think pay newspapers for for to display news on social media, and they responded by um, suggesting that they would like prevent um, news from being shared on their platforms. Um, and you know that's just something that I suppose you wouldn't have had to think about um, prior to having all of these digital channels to share the news on. Yeah, it's a real struggle because a lot of for a lot of newspaper, you know, I'm asked a lot, like, does anybody read newspapers anymore? And of course, what what's the truth is they're reading them voraciously, uh, but they're not reading them in the same way they used to read them. It's not like we sit down with a piece of paper and flip through the pages. It's that they they come up on our Facebook news feed or they come up on, you know, Twitter, X formerly known as Twitter, whatever you want to call it, or on LinkedIn. Uh the articles are still getting read. Uh, most most newspapers will tell you their readership uh, is greater than it's ever been. Uh, even some small small papers, a, a local small town newspaper, will have greater readership than it's ever had because everybody who's moved out of that small town and moved across the country or across the globe, still reading it online because they want to keep up with what's going on. Um, but uh, but that that tension between kind of understanding that those social media platforms are a source of readership, but also not wanting to give away the show to those social media platforms creates some real issues. You know, we just saw it now with the, uh, this uh, legal, uh, legal uh, battle going on between uh, the New York Times and OpenAI uh, over, it's a little bit different of an issue, but uh, you know, to what extent did OpenAI effectively, you know, copy or steal content from the New York Times in order to train its large language model. Um, uh, and what, you know, just what is copyright and, and what is the copying and stealing in that context? Uh, it, it, they're challenging issues that nobody has any answers for and the legal system will undoubtedly sort them out over the next few years or at least try to. Uh, but they're really interesting questions and, and, and difficult ones. Yeah, that's so interesting because it really, um, 
you know, what you're teasing out there is that like, um, you know, nothing is really black and white, is it? Because you, you have this this concept where, you know, copyright, um, you know, I can't, I can't, you know, exactly duplicate your work and pass it off as my own. But generally, in the context of humans, you know, um, that it's been well understood that I can read Bob's work and I can read everyone else's work. And then I can, I can kind of use that to inform my own perspective on something. And, and if you think about it, of course, that's what these like models that OpenAI are developing is doing. It's reading everyone's work and, and then using that to kind of produce something, something novel and unique. But, um, right. but you know, you know, there, there's, their arguments is like, we are along that spectrum does, does, um, you know, training a large language model fall. Um, and I suppose it's, it's unclear what is fair and just um, in the context of all of that and if someone should pay for, for access to that data. And it's, it's what's, what's going to be really interesting from my perspective is how it's not necessarily the decisions that are made from a legal perspective, but how do these things affect the way the internet works because of course for the last 20 odd years you know 25 years call it um most of the internet has been entirely open and very very small percentage has been like hidden behind um paywalls and um you know other restrictions but of course if if we have all of these um if we have all of these you know tools that are using all of the data that's out there to build, you know, commercial products, then, um, you know, the, and, and the value is now in the data so much more Then uh, you know, we'll probably go to some, you know, almost take a back step into this like closed ecosystem where um, every website has like a login page and you can't access it unless you, unless you're like an authenticated user or something like that. And, Maybe that's a good thing. Maybe it's bad. I'm not sure, but it's kind of weird to think about. Yeah, I think that would be a bad thing. I mean, it it, it really is interesting, and as you, as you point out, it, it's really this question of are these large language models learning from this content, or are they copying in some way this content? Uh, and uh, you know, the 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 understanding has up until now has largely been it's that they're learning, that they're not sort of going to just replicate, uh, you know, they're not going to spit out verbatim an article that appeared in the New York Times because you asked a query related to that. Uh, but, uh, but, but who knows? I mean, one of the problems is that for many of these LLMs are effectively black boxes and we don't fully know how they're working or what's happening behind the scenes. So again, I think, uh, I think litigation, perhaps, if it gets to that over the next couple of years, is going to tell us a whole lot uh, that we need to know about what's going on in the background with these systems. And, and we'll have a lot to do with determining the answer to the point you, you raise of whether things are going to get locked down or remain open. Let's hope they remain open. Yeah, definitely. Something um, just an interesting point on that is um, I think uh, it is easy for an LLM to uh, – to just copy and paste an answer from from one of their sources of data, um, and and that's actually something that's been seen at a lot of alternatives to companies like OpenAI. There there've been a few LLMs that have been that I've seen on uh, X, where um, you know if, if if any of the listeners are familiar with software engineering, there was a there was a LLM 
that um, as an answer provided an API key, which is this piece of information that you can use to access a service. And it's meant to identify who you are and it should never be shared with other parties. And so somehow this um, language model um, came to read this API key and then give it to someone else as an answer and it worked. Um, and oftentimes use of an API is um, charged for. So presumably this LM shared this thing and then other people were using it and um, were racking up a bill for someone they didn't know somewhere else. Um, and so I think a lot of the, uh, the, the often, probably the difference between copying and learning and generation um, will, will come down to who's building the model and how good are they at um, preventing um, copyright uh, uh, infringement. Yeah, that's really yeah. interesting. There was an article in New York Times, I think it was New York Times a couple of weeks ago about manipulating uh, ChatGPT to provide uh, to provide the email addresses of reporters at the New York Times, something like that. I mean, not that those are necessarily private or, or, or uh, uh, you know, something you don't want to disclose, but uh, it, it, the kind of information that in theory you shouldn't be able to get out of GPT. Uh, and yet by, by querying it in a certain way, they were able to do that. Yeah. Yeah. I watched an interesting video on all the ways you can, uh, you can practically breach language models and how it's like a new surface for hackers and bad actors, um, to like use and their like nefarious acts. Um, so m moving on from, um, this kind of con uh, the topic of artificial intelligence, which I'm sure we could probably talk about for the whole rest of the, the episode. I'd love to kind of step back um, more directly into journalism um, and it would be, I'd really appreciate it if you could break down for me kind of the step-by-step -step process of how you go from seeing the hint of, you know, possibly an, there's an interesting story here to actually, you know, sharing a story. And maybe that looks like identification of the story, research, drafting, publishing, what, you know, what does that look like? Yeah, I mean, again, it depends, like everything else, and it all depends on, on uh, the context and the story and the publication. Um, and uh, I mean, if you're asking about me personally, as opposed to uh, something uh, of a more generic nature, then uh, you know, it. I think it's 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 interesting that it's kind of evolved uh, quite a bit for me over the years. It, you know, I I started my blog. I hate to say this, like 22 years ago, I've been doing this a long time, uh, had one of the earliest blogs in the, in the legal world. Um, and, I, you know, I knew at that point that I wanted to be kind of covering this development of, of the internet and, and that kind of more, not morphed into that kind of uh, uh, expanded into covering legal tech more broadly. Um, but it, in it, at that point, it was um, challenging to come up with stories because you were. It required a lot of a lot of kind of uh, uh, 
legwork in a sense, uh, the online legwork, but uh, just trying to keep up with everything that was going on, which was, again, nowhere near what's going on these days. But it also wasn't as easy to keep up in those days. And so it's just kind of reading a lot of sources, keeping up with a lot of sources, trying to put the pieces together and then identify what could make a good story out of that. And then, you know, I mean, once you've sort of identified a story, then there's various ways you can go at it. But I mean, the, the, the basics of, of writing a story really haven't, haven't changed that much. I mean, it's generally a matter of, of, figuring out uh, who you should be talking to and, and uh, uh, trying to get those conversations and trying to figure out uh, what else there is out there that can, that can uh, corroborate or, or substantiate or, or, uh, or otherwise uh, what you're writing about. Uh, and, uh, and then putting it all together in, into a narrative. I mean, you, you, you said earlier that, you know, that, that there's a lot of similarities between the practice of law and the practice of journalism. And, and I think that's 100% true. I mean, the, the process of, of what a lawyer does and what a journalism does both kind of boil down to this idea of like pulling together the, the facts and, and the sources and the information and then putting it together into a narrative that, that tells a story uh, and then presenting that story to your audience. Uh, and uh, whether you're a journalist or a lawyer, that's kind of what you're doing every day. Um, you know, I think that for me that what, what's evolved a lot now is that because of the fact that I've, uh, in part because of the fact that I, I've gained prominence as somebody who writes about this and also just in, in, in part because of the fact that this area has accelerated to such a degree, uh, I, I am just you know, I'm getting inundated every day with people asking me to write about them, trying to get me to write about them. Um, and uh, I, there's so much going on that that I personally, I, I don't think this is this is a something that I, I'm not necessarily happy about, but I, I think it's it's become harder, harder for me to do the really kind of in-depth pieces I'd like to be doing more of. And I spend a lot more time doing the sort of, uh, you know, breaking news kinds, kinds of articles uh, in the sense of this company just got a huge investment or this company just got acquired or they just launched this this new product. that's pretty cool. So I, I tend to focus a lot more these days on uh, what's happening now as opposed to a, a deeper dive into, you know, what has happened or what is likely to be happening, uh, which I which I'd like to do more of. Um, and and maybe I'll start to do more of it over the next year or so. Yeah, definitely. And you mentioned <laughs> that you, for more than 20 years, have been writing blogs, hosting podcasts on the intersection of law and technology. One of your more notable, um, I guess, blogs or uh, channels for distributing all of this has been uh, lawnext.com. What is lawnext.com? Uh, well, lawnext.com is actually uh, a, a sort of newer invention as a domain name uh, that's become a home for a couple of different things that we're doing. But I originally, my, the blog I started way back 22 years ago was called Law Sites. Um, and uh, it was called that because originally I was mostly just writing about law-related websites. I was kind of tracking, uh, uh, the, as I said, the early days of the web and the internet as it impacted lawyers uh, and uh, that's that's the main uh, platform on which I write uh, stories uh, and 
uh, all of that. Uh, also, I, I, way back in 2005, I started podcasting, but I was doing a totally different podcast for a long time. And then in 2018, I decided to start uh, my own podcast. The other one I'd been doing, I'd been doing it in partnership with, with somebody else. Excuse me. Um, so I started a podcast uh, called Law Next, uh, and I like the name because it suggested uh, focusing on, on the future of law practice and, and what's coming. And I really kind of tried to focus on talking to uh, people who are sort of entrepreneurs, innovators in the legal field uh, about what's coming down the pike and what they're doing now. Uh, and uh, that uh, I, I kind of out of those two main things, and I also do another podcast every Friday where we uh, do a called Legal Tech Week, where we have a, a roundtable of, of journalists and bloggers who kind of talk about the top stories of the week in, in legal tech and innovation. Um, but uh, out, out of all that, I, I also realized at some point that I was I, I was just accumulating just huge amounts of information about a whole lot of different legal tech companies. Uh, and uh, I, I thought that I should try and organize that in some way that would make it more useful to consumers, that there aren't a lot of good sites for consumers of legal tech to um, go in and find information about the, the companies that, that might do what they need uh, or, or user reviews or that kind of thing. So we decided to start a, uh, a legal tech directory, uh, something like a, a Captera type of a thing, but focused on the legal industry. Uh, and and uh, so uh, somewhere along that, and that was just a couple of years ago that we launched the directory, but somewhere in all of that, we decided to group it all together under this umbrella, lawnext.com, and my blog is there, and my podcast is there, and our legal tech directory is there, and uh, uh, sort of an expanding uh, small portfolio of, of uh, publications and podcasts and products that all relate to that domain. Law next is my home. <laughs> uh, yeah, we should probably, Bob, we should probably build a Bob um, LLM based on all of that information you've accumulated all, uh, over the years. Well, my son has been trying to do that. Uh, <laughs> I, I, he's, he was working on doing that, actually. My son is a uh, programmer, actually, at, at my case. I think you're, you, you know, oh, well. my case. But, uh, but uh, on the side, he was playing around with uh, creating a uh, generative a chat, a chat interface, anyway, into all my stuff. That's so fun. So you've hosted your Law Next podcast for more than 240 episodes. Uh, you, you touched on kind of how it got started, but how have you grown the podcast and your audience for Law Next over the, over the years? Um, it's, uh, <laughs> uh, it's kind of just taken on a life of its own. I, I, I wish I could say I was smarter about, about uh, marketing and, and growing it, but it's been very organic, I think. I mean, again, just since 20, between 2018 to now, uh, the numbers of legal podcasts has uh, snowballed in, in a huge way. Uh, glad you have your podcast and glad there's a whole lot of other podcasts out there. But in, in 2018, it was still not like a hugely crowded field. It wasn't like everybody and their mother had a podcast. Uh, now it, it's a, it is a hugely crowded field and it gets harder and harder. I think for anybody with a podcast to, to stand out and build audience. Um, 
but but I think I, I do have that advan- that primacy advantage maybe a early early uh, uh, early launch advantage where I think we built up kind of name recognition and audience uh, ahead of the curve uh, and uh, I, I think that's continued to build on itself so uh, I, I I think we could actually do a whole lot better job at, at kind of marketing and building up audience but the the audience has just continued to to grow and uh, you know, we just continue to um, try and get guests that we think are just kind of continue to focus on that issue of sort of innovation and, and what's coming in, in law and legal tech. A lot of it is very legal tech focused and a lot of, I get a lot of founders and that sort of thing, but um, it, it's uh, like I say, it's, it, it's, it's developed a life of, of its own and I just try and keep up with it. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, definitely. Well, um, actually, Maybe um, this is this might be surprising for some some of our listeners, but um, I uh, I've gotten a lot of advice from people who are much smarter than me about content marketing and and um, distributing things like podcasts and content. And the the number one advice that I've gotten from the most successful people in the area is that you should focus almost exclusively on producing content that is valuable for your audience and then it will mm-hmm. practically distribute itself as long as you haven't made any massive errors um so so really um i think probably what what you've done bob is is like the best thing to do is just focus on the content make great content and people will come yeah that that's the secret sauce and i and i've i've believed that's from the earliest days i mean you know i used to have people tell me how i needed to work on seo on my blog and uh, all of that sort of thing and I, the blog is its own seo uh, and if if you write good content uh and if you write important content that people are going to want to read and find valuable it, they're going to find it and they're going to you know read it and it's going to grow and tell their friends about it yeah yeah, awesome. Well, we have released just 10 episodes of our podcast, uh, the File Notes podcast. And so do you have any tips for me? Well, you know, I think probably my my number one tip would have been uh, what you just said, which is just to focus on, on quality and on good guests. I mean, you're you do a great job interviewing and, and uh, it's a it's a really it's really professionally done. Um, Consistency is important. Uh, you know, I, I've seen so many lawyers or, or legal professionals who will make a big splash about starting a podcast and then they just get too busy or lose interest or whatever. And then the episodes start to slack off. Uh, we, we do it every week. Uh, and, um, you know, I've been podcasting pretty much every week, at least once every week, uh, more or less since 2005. Uh, and just keep at it and keep putting it out there. Um, you know, it is fun to, I, I, I think about, I'm always thinking about how I can, uh, who, who I can talk to. And, and I, I usually, whenever I travel to a conference or whatever else, I bring some, at least some basic podcasting equipment so I can, you know, walk up to somebody and say, Hey, you want to sit down and record an interview? And, you know, often, uh, uh, we will impromptu just sit down and, and, and have a conversation. I won't have prepared for it at all, which uh, it, it off, usually would terrify me. But sometimes those impromptu conversations end up being the best ones and, and the most natural and, and the most free flowing. So, uh, but no, I th- you know, I think it's just thinking about quality content, consistency, 
knowing kind of, you know, knowing your show, know, it's hard to know your audience. People always say, know your audience, but podcasting, you don't know who's, who's out there downloading <laughs> it. You think, you know, and, and you, you guess that they must be a certain group of people who would be interested in the stuff you're talking about, but you don't always know other than the feedback you get when you run into people here and there. But uh, I think, you know, know yourself, know what you want to do with it and just keep at it. Yeah. Awesome. I appreciate that. Thank you. Um, so what's, uh, this might be a bit of a pun, but what's next for you, Bob? Um, for me, it's, uh, what's, what's next, I think is pretty much just kind of, uh, continuing, uh, continuing, uh, in, in the, in the normal course. Uh, we, I, uh, I go to a lot of legal tech conferences, so I'm about to launch into the whole legal tech season, uh, in a couple of weeks, I'll be going off to uh, Legal Week in New York, which is one of the oldest and longest standing legal tech conferences. From there, I'll go to uh, the, uh, the Legal Services Corporation, which operates all the uh, kind of, uh, you know, um, the uh, legal services offices in the United States to provide services to low income individuals. They have a big uh, innovations in tech conference uh, every year and I'll go right from New York down to that conference. And then a few weeks after that is tech show uh, in uh, ABA tech show in Chicago, where I know your team will be there as well. And I, at that show, I run something called startup alley, which is a uh, startup pitch competition on the opening night of the show. Uh, and uh, so that's, that's, that's my calendar for the next few weeks. Awesome. Very exciting. Well, for our listeners, Bob, how should they connect with you? Uh, well, lawnext.com, uh, you can find all of our stuff there. Uh, my podcast, Law Next, you can find on any any podcast player you prefer to use. We also do the uh, Legal Tech Week podcast, which is both uh, available on podcast platforms and uh, on YouTube. And uh, anybody wants to just reach out to me directly, the easiest way is just email me. It's ambrogi, A-M-B-R-O-G-I at gmail.com. Fantastic. Well, thanks so much for joining me, Bob. I've really enjoyed our conversation. Me too, Luke. I really appreciate it. I'm really honored to be on it. And uh, it's a great, great show. So thanks for having me. Thanks so much for joining us for this episode of File Notes. To keep up with the latest episodes and content, follow us on LinkedIn and YouTube at File Notes Podcast. You can also visit us on our website at vxt.co.nz forward slash podcast forward slash file notes to subscribe to our email list and never miss an episode. That's vxt.co.nz forward slash podcasts forward slash file notes. See you there.